2: Star Talk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil DeGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. I also serve as director of New York City's Hayden Planetarium right here in New York City at the american museum of natural history my co-host is the one and only Chuck nice
1: and thank god for that huh the one and only <laughs> <laughs>
2: you're thanking god today right exactly. okay <laughs> not your parents not my for parents. birthing you right right all right, right. Today, we're going to be talking about my interview with the science journalist, Miles O'Brien. Nice. My, I mean, how many science journalists can you actually name? Uh,
1: you know? that, now, one. <laughs>
2: now I can name one. Miles O'Brien. Miles O'Brien. He's had a whole career in this stuff. Uh, he was a science correspondent for CNN for 16 years. Wow. And uh, he might have even been there from the beginning. I mean, I don't know. Wasn't, CNN ain't all that old, right? Not I mean, really. Right, right. And uh, he's reporting on science and science space and aviation and environmental issues. He was their go-to man. And right now he's no longer with CNN and he's a, he does pieces on science for the PBS NewsHour. That's great. Uh, formerly the McNeil-Lair
1: McNeil-Lair Hour. Hour. Yeah, yeah. That's did right. one of them die or something? Like, I'm not sure. One of them left. I, what, yeah. I'm sure one of them's gone. I'm not sure if he's <laughs> left us completely. <laughs> Don't know if he's left this earth right, or left not. Left the earth or not. But Yeah, I think they both uh, retired. They're
2: though. both retired. Okay, so we I caught up with Miles on the road, cool. and I said, I can't miss that opportunity to get him on Star Talk. So. I pulled out my microphone and we just started
1: talking. sounds so
2: dirty. So I didn't say I whipped out the microphone. (laughs) I said I pulled it out. You made it. I I made it clean. You made it clean. I made it dirty. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering, was he always interested in science? And did he study science in school? And how do you become a science reporter for a major news? So this is what I was curious about. Let's find out.
3: I'm a history major. And it shows in my reporting, don't you think? (laughs) I'm a classic example of a guy who has a natural interest and appreciation for science, Mm -hmm. and without naming any names, was taught by some teachers who didn't infuse the enthusiasm for the subject Mm -hmm. that should be there. Enthusiasm, because you can read that immediately in the face of a reporter. Exactly. It's interesting how when I came to the subject, I came to it in such a strange way compared to other people, a uh, history major. I become a reporter. I'm in local news for a dozen years. What local? Where were you local? Oh, I was in St. Joe, Missouri. That's a big market. <laughs> 191 out of 203 at the time. <laughs> I used to shoot my own stories back in the day when the camera was attached to a big recorder, which itself weighed about hundred pounds, all myself, one man band. And then I found my way into Albany, New York, then Tampa, Florida, Boston, and then while I'm in Boston... Each um, market ever bigger than the previous yeah, one. Yeah, more crimes to cover. There's more bodies and therefore more, you know, there's fires and, and mayhem. And so I was getting tired of that, but I didn't see a logical way out necessarily until I heard that CNN was looking for a reporter. The catch was they were looking for a science correspondent. A science correspondent, the history major who had been chasing around... So now you're
2: being audacious to respond to an ad for a science reporter. scientific
3: term would be ballsy. <laughs> okay. So I managed to cobble together a tape that had a reasonable number of technical stories that was kind of science-y. Science wasn't something scary to you. This is the key. The only reason I am where I am... I was never afraid of the subject. That's important. Yes, and this is a key issue with people because there is a science phobia, which I discovered in a palpable way when I was trying to get stories on the air at CNN. You know, that newsroom is populated by science phobics. They're all poli-sci history English majors, God bless them, I'm one of them, who are petrified. You say the S word and they practically run. From you And I cannot tell you how many times you go through all the iterative processes to get a piece ready for air and then there's a final play for the supervising producer of CNN, play the tape for them. Tape, we had in those days. I was about to come yeah, back. in the day. Man, I didn't even that old. It was relatively esoteric. It was like buckyballs. Carbon 60,
2: making the vertices of a soccer ball, essentially. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. It was
3: graphite of the year. Right? Yeah. It was on the cover of Science mm-hmm. Magazine. You know, It was a big deal for a little while. We thought we were going to have superconductivity by now. On Mars with Buckyballs. <laughs> a lot of these things didn't pan out. But anyway. And the flying cars, too. Don't forget those. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I flew my jetpack into the newsroom and, <laughs> and played this tape about Buckyballs. And the guy said, I know this is science, but that was interesting. Wow. That's that some kind that of book so- in it. Yes. As if the two were mutually exclusive. So it's interesting how science is perceived. By people, And I think we do a pretty good job in our educational system of scaring people away. But how much of this
2: yeah. was because you were simply
3: a good journalist That's telling good, the story? Uh, that's a really good question. Because really, the purest definition of a journalist would be the most important thing is an overriding sense of curiosity, a desire to understand yourself. No matter the subject. And, and an ability to communicate that to your audience. That's the job, right? Right. So whether it's politics, and Lord knows we get a lot of that or science, it should be the same discipline. When I went down to interview for the job, Bailey Barish was the science editor at the time. She was a former molecular biologist. She actually knew science. And I came in there as this local news guy, cobbled together this reasonably technical tape out of Boston, and really had no business being there. And she put me through the two-day interview, which included going out and shooting a story, reading in front of the camera, all the stuff you'd expect, but also a written and oral exam about science. Man. I flunked. You know, she was asking me all these things about climate change, and this was 1992. Early in this. You would have known about it, but I was the history major chasing bodies around in Boston. I didn't really know much about it. We knew about it from the 80s when they started talking about the effect of climate change
2: from asteroid impacts and nuclear winter and all of this.
3: Of course, Jim Hansen and Al Gore were talking to Congress about it late 80s, but I wasn't paying attention. Anyway, so I flunked it miserably. I get to the end of the line after this two-day ordeal, the president of CNN... Bob Fernand, and he, he's at his desk, you know, he doesn't even look up from the papers, you know, his desk. Yeah. Obviously, you don't know shit about science. So this is one of those moments in life, what do you do? And I threw the Hail Mary pass, I said, and that is why you want to hire me. And I thought at the time that was deep into the balls The truth is, it is the truth. Because The audience of CNN, it's not scientists. You know, they tell us to write to somewhere between the fifth and eighth grade education. And what you need is somebody who's curious, not afraid of the subject, and able to figure out ways to communicate complex things in a more simplistic way. All those things, as it turns out, I was pretty good at. And so actually, having somebody come in there defending a degree might get in the way. And as we all know, science is a lot of things to a lot of people and it's very compartmentalized. If I happen to be an astrophysicist, what would I know about buckyballs or whatever? I would have a keener understanding of the scientific process, but i learned the scientific process pretty quickly along the way. And I also had a former molecular biologist as my editor. So it's a great lesson for all of us, I think, about science and why it scares us and how, if we're just a little curious and embrace it, We might all like it a little better.
2: You're listening to the Star Talk interview with science journalist Miles O'Brien. That'll continue when we come back. We're back. Star Talk Radio. Neil Tyson here, Chuck Nice. That's right. Across the desk from me. We're here in New York City, and we're talking about science journalism. Yes. And we've got Miles O'Brien. So uh, apparently you only know one science journalist and his name is
1: Miles O'Brien. <laughs> okay. And and before you, this You got to get out more. Yeah, I really do. And, and and um except I also know Science Friday, except I don't know the journalist. You
2: don't know the journalist you on know. Science Friday, NPR is Science NPR Friday. Science.
1: Yeah. But I'm going to rename him Ballsy O'Brien. Balls O'Brien from that last
2: clip. Yes, yeah, as a that's history my... major, bust into the man's office, said, right. "I'm going to be your science reporter." Yeah, man, Ballsy O'Brien. <laughs> but that's kind of that's that that's, uh, there's a gender neutral way to say that. What is that? You say, go naddle, O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> go naddle. Go, yeah, go nads, because men and women go both nads. have gone now. Go nads, there you go. Um, so uh, we we have more of my interview with him. Uh, like I said, I caught up with him like on the road, and I, some of the clips sound like we were in a rain conduit under a highway. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that's so true. <laughs>
2: but we got him. I got him on on tape. Were you
1: guys graffitiing a wall while you were talking? <laughs> we were <laughs> I'll
2: get the interview wherever I can, whenever I can. <laughs> whenever I can. Uh, so uh, in this in this next clip, I I asked him what is what's going on because it seems like journalists are now the center of the story. You know, they're not talking about something else. Everything's got to go through them and get their opinion and their perspectives. And I just was curious about the trend. Let's find out.
3: I think the idea of journalists becoming personalities was probably rooted in a good idea, but it's gotten out of control. The good idea is that we all need to kind of have somebody take us along for the ride. Otherwise, you'd all go out and do stories and it'd be mayhem, right? The notion of journalism is that you hire a guy like me who has the time wherewithal profession to go out and talk to people about complicated things and, and relay that back. In the process of doing that, you kind of want to go along for my journey and see how you did it. That makes for a more effective storytelling motif. So you're my personal guide. You kind of like that. I am a tour guide to the world of science. Now, you can do it other ways where people like you as a scientist could carry the entire story, sort of the old BBC style, right? No narration. Just let the scientist tell the story. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that this is another way to do it. What happens, though, is if you get really good at it, you get in the way of the story as the fame and the fortune and the attention. get Your identity going. becomes bigger well, than the story dwarfs. itself. It's like the sun exploding and taking the planets in with it. I don't know. That's a bad analogy. <laughs> but the point is I think it's difficult to stop this train once it gets going down the tracks. And we're pretty far down the tracks right now. The thing about working for a place like PBS is no one cares. (laughs) There's no money or fame. It's just we go out and do stories. Go out, get the job done, go on to the next one. I insert myself to the extent that it makes sense, and no more, no less, and it doesn't get out of control. What happens is it becomes a real money game. And frankly... It leads to bigger contracts for journalists, and so it's obvious that they would do this. But I think there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there in telling the story. I guess I don't mind people being
2: personalities, but what has happened is the journalists have now become opinion leaders. And so the line that I thought used to be there between here's someone who I trust who's giving me news, and here's someone who I just heard the news, but now they're telling me how to think.
3: I don't know that that wine is still there. No, it's gone. But I think what has happened, part of the problem here, is that in a world where information has become a commodity, what is a journalist to do to provide the value added, right? How do they, in this cacophonous world, wave their hands and say, hey, hey, hey listen to me over here? And it's a natural outcome of my experience covering news for 30 years and space for 20, to have enough depth and knowledge of it to actually be able to analyze it in a way that is not just the facts, ma'am. I can go beyond Joe Friday. Now does that mean that I turn my work into just opinion screed after opinion screed? No. Does it mean that I, in the context of what I do on the web through the various media that I'm involved in, there are places for me to kind of connect some dots that I wouldn't necessarily in a classic AP style story? Yes. Reporters are given a license to give their opinion. It's very easy to just keep doing that. That's happened with Lou Dobbs. He was probably the first to do that
2: in a really big way. I used to watch him for news, and then I noticed... A growing fraction of his delivery of content was just how he thought about the world. It was like the Lou Dobbs show, you know, rather than time to get more news.
3: Well, there's a lot of history to this. Of course, you know, we call this the Foxification of news because Fox, of course, made a huge business out of providing news from a very distinct perspective. From a point of view right? There used to be a thing called the Fairness Doctrine. All that's gone for the broadcast. Of course, cable has never been FCC controlled anyway. So what you've seen is this kind of polarizing component to the mainstream media on cable. Lou saw that, got right on there, and she helped lead that charge. And the presumption is that plain old vanilla newscast, that Ted Turner always said the news will always be the star here. That was his quote back in 1980. That sentence was actually he, uttered. That was uttered. It's a quaint and humble time. Oh my God. He got off his horse there in Atlanta, and it was, it was lit by kerosene. <laughs> the news will be the star. What a notion. Somebody should
2: resurrect well,
3: that. CNN's philosophy should be that still today. But for whatever reason, they've decided they have to answer this foxification factor, but they can't quite figure out how to do it because they want to be the world's most respected, important network, which they are globally. And yet they want to put in this edge and you can't square that very well. So I think, frankly, if they just got back to that notion, you could cut your salary on air talent. You know, Ted just hired washed up local anchors to do it back in 1980 because that's all he could afford. And all they did was give the news. Well, these days, could you make a business doing that with all the other sources? I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: I'm not sure.
2: Yeah. So Chuck, does your fame get in the way of your storytelling of accurate (laughs) content?
1: Yeah. Yes. All the time. Uh, And by get in the way, I mean, not at all because I don't have any fame. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of hard for it to get in the way of something that doesn't exist. That
2: doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you something, because I'm partly on the journalist side of the line in the sand, because I get called by journalists to talk about the universe. If you're watching the news, what do you want to hear? Do, Do you want to see a
1: famous person and then have them talk about no. The news objectively. I don't want to see a famous person, and he's right. You know, uh, Miles O'Brien. I, is Miles right. O'Brien is right. I love when he says. Basically, what he's saying is, you got to get the money out of journalism. Mm-hmm. You hear that, Matt Lauer? <laughs> we're coming for you. No, uh, <laughs> coming for your paycheck. We're coming for your pay. It's like it's like Citizens United. Get the money out of politics. We got to uh, get the money out of journalism mm. because it really has become about personalities. It's a cult of personalities.
2: Yeah, but it's not the journalists. fault. People tune in. They they want to see uh, Anderson right. Cooper. They want to see Rachel. Ray or, yeah. or she's cooks, but yeah, still
1: P- personality apparently matters. Well, you know, I blame Walter Cronkite for this. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Seriously. People he's like, tune into him. And he's the guy that did it. He's the guy that was, people were like, I got to get home and watch Walter Cronkite because right. I really trust that guy and it's, whatever he tells me. It's is his true. fault. It's his fault. God rest his soul.
2: <laughs> wow. I, I have to agree with you. Yeah. It was his way of telling the news that people trusted. Right. And yeah. we didn't think of it as personality type, but that's what it was. That's
1: really what it was, yeah. And for him to be on the news nightly and coming into your home and saying, you know. In your living room. In your living room. And that's the way it was, or it is. Or, or will mean, be. Or will be. Or might have been. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. See, that's true journalism. Right, right. You know, uh, and that's the way it might have Bit. Because I'm, I'm totally objective.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, for most of my world, the universe, it's hard to put a strong opinion on it. You know, if I tell you, you know, two galaxies are going to collide, or the sun just burped up some plasma, right. and that gets reported, it, it's not susceptible to politicizing.
1: Oh, I don't know. Well- <laughs> Uh, You don't watch a lot of Fox News, do you?
2: (laughs) No, 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 I mean you'd be surprised. I mean, of all the sciences, right? Astrophysics, I think, is the least politicizable. Like when you think about it, see, there's biology, there's health, there's you know. Think of all the other sciences and the way people try to put a spin on it.
1: But see, now here's the deal. Once again, you're thinking like a scientist (laughs) because when you think about the absolute, uh, you know, what you think is just. A truth, okay? For instance, the age of the universe yeah. because of measurable light.
2: Yes, yes. 14 right? billion years old. 14
1: yeah. billion years old. There are people who say, nah. <laughs> <laughs> that's no that's that can't be well so but it's
2: the it's the, like i say the good thing about science is true whether or not you believe in it and just move we just
1: move on oh that's true now,
2: now that's that's a good point that's all that's all i'm trying to say here but the the idea that we have personalities i think it's unavoidable because we like personalities there it is you, right. you can complain about it but that's not going to change
1: and also information has to do with whether or not you receive it has to do with uh, from whom it's coming? The storyteller. The storyteller. And not everyone is an equal storyteller. Absolutely.
2: Right. So, and the journalistic version of a storyteller is: Do I just like what you wear or what you sound like or, or your hair? You're, yeah. Right. Your big, your great journalist hair. Crazy. We gotta take a break. We'll be back with Star Talks interview with Miles O'Brien, science journalist.
1: pxg.com slash star code star
2: This is Star Talk Radio, continuing. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, Chuck Nice. Your personal comedian. (laughs) What's
1: that, right? I'm trying to be something. (laughs) You need some kind of moniker. I'm just trying to be something now. (laughs) Uh,
2: What's your your Twitter moniker? Uh, Chuck Nice Comic. At Chuck Nice Comic. Comic, okay. I follow you, actually. Yeah, I follow you, too. Okay, well, thank you. Of course. Mutual following society. That's right. Uh, We've been listening to my interview with Miles O'Brien. Fascinating stuff. The science journalist. Started out at CNN and, and freelanced for a bit, and now he's... He's a regular correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. It's all about science journalism. And I just wanted to get to the bottom of it, because I've been interviewed a zillion times and not all science journalists are created equal. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask him, what did he think made a good interview or bad interview? Let's find out.
3: How many times have you sat and listened to an interview on TV where it's obvious the person doing the questioning is not listening? Yeah, I see that. And this happens a lot in live TV. It's very difficult. Like they're just going through the motion. Yeah, it's very difficult because they'll say, hey, we got Neil Tyson on this morning and we're going to talk about this new planet they discovered, right? And we got maybe four minutes. And when you get on the air, somebody's gone long before you, the politician, and, and they get in your ear and they say, we only have two minutes with deal. And then, you know, you're, you're they're talking to you the whole time. And then when you talk, the minute you say something, they're screaming in my ear and I can't. So it's obvious what happens. That becomes a horrible interview. And a lot of that is not the fault of the anchor person. But the moral of that story is, if you're allowed the opportunity to actually have a, a dialogue as we're having now, you'll have a great interview. You know, Larry King famously did not do homework. He was proud of that fact. Now, I think that's a little extreme, but there is a little kernel of wisdom in That's right, he's CNN. He's He's in the family. He's in the family, but he famously did not do any homework. He wanted to be as if he was a viewer, which led to some very embarrassing moments on television, frankly, where he just asked some really inane, stupid questions. However, by and large, I think there's something to that. You don't want to forget who's coming along with you on this. And to the extent that you're trying to impress people by being smart and knowing stuff you're not doing a good job as an interviewer. You're just trying to show off. If you're just asking questions that seem logical to you as a reporter and a person, and by extension the viewers, and you're listening to your subject, you're going have a great interview. So that must be the times when I
2: find myself sometimes having to tow the interviewer when I'm being interviewed, because they don't really know what they're asking, so I have to sort of help them along. And that's a big effort that I have to put in. I don't t- want to have to do that. It takes two to tango. Sometimes you just don't click. Because when they do click, then we can go to new
3: places it's, in a short amount of time. It's extraordinary. It's, it's a yeah. back and forth, yeah. and there you there And, and you, know. you know, I know this is a family show, but it is like some other things in life. <laughs> Either you got the chemistry or you don't, right? Hmm.
2: Yeah, I am fatigued when I have to tow... A, a journalist's interview. Oh man. Um, it's like we could have we could have made music together.
1: And right now I'm towing your ass. <laughs> exactly. Right. You're l- big lard butt. <laughs> lard. You're a big journalistic lard butt. I gotta carry you around now because you don't know what
2: <laughs> but, it, but you it, must now, feel it, that what you must feel that if you're doing a room. If you're in a comedy doing a room and the room is not with you, you gotta tow them, right? That's a that's a burden.
1: <sighs> yeah, but you know you can't look at that way can't look at it that way as a comedian because it's my job to make them laugh. It is so I job. can't okay. look at them and say like, okay. "Well, you guys aren't getting this. It's your fault. <laughs> you know, I don't suck. You do. It's a little <laughs> difficult as the comedian." To, to that wouldn't that go over stance. well. Would... <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle of my ass. You know what? You guys suck. You guys have no sense of humor. Right. You guys have no. Sense. <laughs> but now it's funny what I what he said about I. I think the thing I learned the most in that clip was that Larry King is lazy. <laughs>
2: No, because I did. I I never did Larry King while he was on. Excuse me, I was never interviewed by Larry King while he was on CNN. But he he has an he has a, a web. A show now. Right. And so I did his web show. Okay. And so my first time ever with Larry King. He's there, his susp- suspenders and.
1: Cleveland, yeah. you're on. <laughs> Cleveland, you're on with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're sitting here having some gin sauna together. What's the question? Go
2: yeah. Ahead. So, so what was interesting was he never actually followed up on any answer that I gave. He just kept it was like a machine in motion. Right. So it was. Superficially it might have f- seemed like a conversation, but it wasn't. But it really wasn't. It wasn't. He gotcha. was just I'm I've got to get through these questions. I'm getting through it, my questions. You, whatever your answer is, it doesn't matter. I'm moving, you know. Right. And that means he gets through an interview, you know, you gotta credit him that. Right. He's not gonna leave anything out from his agenda items, but But I, that's not a conversation. It was not a it was not a conversation. And
1: it's also not an opportunity for people to learn even more and more, especially with someone like you. Cause you're, I mean, I go places. No, I'm serious. You do, and I'm not. You know, listen. I'm going to kiss your butt just a little bit right now. (laughs) But the fact (laughs) is that you're not just smart about astrophysics. You are an. You are intellectually curious, period. So, like, there are so many things that you can talk about. That's what had, that's, you know, that's why I do this show. Well, it fleshes out, Well, thank you. Thanks for, for, yes, because
2: it fleshes out all the, the surrounding terrain. Exactly. Of a conversation. No, I agree. I, I agree. So, so, but it's interesting that he is definitely aware of that because he's on the journalist side of that equation and right. he sees it and he knows it when it's happening. Right, right. You know, so, so uh, generally, when I go in, I'm ready for the journalist to not. Uh, come back at me, and I try to I parcel the information so that it lives on its own. Gotcha. And I'm, but if they then engage me, we go to new now places. Now you know what to do. So yeah. see,
1: now that you do do in comedy, it's like, ooh, I could tell this is a stupid audience. <laughs> Take that to another. I, I better go someplace else. <laughs> when we come back, more Star Talk Radio.
2: Talk Radio. We're back. Neil Tyson here with Chuck Nice. Chuck, we just came off that clip about what's a good interview or a bad journalistic interview. Right. I... You know, I, I don't expect anything from the journalist. I try to come with my information parceled, and I check to see if does it click or does it not. Right. And so right. I put out a little, a little testers to see, are they paying attention, or and, and are they not? Oh,
1: absolutely. You know? We do that in comedy, too. You do? Yeah, you have to calibrate your audience. Calibrate? Oh, yeah. cali- I love Seriously, the word. yeah Very you scientifically know, literate. You, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to float little trial balloons, you know what I mean? You tell a joke, and then they don't get, you're like, oh, okay, I see what it is. We're going in the, Dick jokes it is. <laughs> dick, dick jokes, rats. Right what you're getting. Okay, people. Nothing smart for
2: you. (laughs) You're calibrating the intelligence level of your audience. So, Miles O'Brien has a lot of history there. He started at CNN, and then CNN closed their science division. And I said, look, I can't interview Miles without hearing some backstory on that, so let's see what he has to say. In
3: 1980, when CNN was new, and the fanciest commercial they could get on the air was the Chia Pet and Zanfair the flute guy. AT&T, back when it was really Ma Bell, approached Ted Turner and said, Ted, how would you like it if we sponsored your fledgling cable news network for science stories? And Ted said, science, yes, we'll do science. Now, admittedly, Ted Turner probably would have done science eventually, would have gotten around to it. But AT&T forced the issue. They came in, and they said, we want to do three spots a week. You'll play the spots, and right after the spot, we'll air an AT&T commercial. And then we'll compile those pieces along with a few other things, and we'll have a weekend show called Science and Technology Week. And we're going to give you X million dollars. Brilliant idea. All of a sudden, there was a science unit. at CNN, brand new network, cable news, 24 hours, and they had a science unit run by a molecular biologist, Bailey Barish, and off to the races they went. And for years and years and years... The world could be coming to an end, and those spots would air. Guaranteed ad The pieces were linked to the advertiser. We had a direct linkage between our science coverage and Mula. That's the of, crash truth. Not some noble no, principle. No, it just was money. Money. There were other. They had a travel show that was similarly linked to commercials, and over time, CNN decided they didn't like that, and they didn't have to do it anymore because they got to be the big dog. And so why should we force ourselves? Producers hate this because in the middle of their show, they have to put the buckyball piece in with the AT&T spot right after it, and it messes up their show, and if something's going on, and makes it difficult for us to produce our shows. So let's get rid of the linkage. And once they got rid of that linkage, it was just a matter of time. Now, I deluded myself into thinking we were so good and that they cared, or at least I thought that for a while, but then I noticed we weren't getting on the air. We would pitch... Ideas, We would produce stories, and they wouldn't get on the air. And then we get queries from certain shows to do, you know, how does that water skiing squirrel water ski anyway? Is there some science there? That was the beginning of the end.
0: Yeah.
2: So the first shuttle launch that you're not covering for CNN because you got pink-slipped. Right. I'm watching CNN, and in come the replacements. (laughs) (laughs) Send in the clouds. (laughs) In come the replacements, and this particular launch, it landed at night. Mm Mm-hmm. So there was like the night scope on it. And so they announced it saying, oh, yeah, there's a glowy area of the shot. Yeah, they got a special camera that makes the hot spots glow. And so I tweeted. I said, could someone teach the reporter the word infrared? (laughs) 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 So he was describing what he saw, but with no understanding behind it. And so, therefore, the viewer is not taken to a new place that they don't see for themselves.
3: And worse yet, no one in the newsroom would have called him on that and said you dummy, that was infrared. Because they either are not listening or are equally uninformed. So Chuck, if you don't have dedicated staff, they
2: they don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the insight, they don't have the lexicon to carry a story. So they're just people on the street at that point.
1: Right. Not trained journalists. Exactly, yeah, people who are, yeah, these guys are going up into the sky (laughs) in their sky chariot. (laughs) Oh my God! Look at that—it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> and there's hot flames coming out the back. Exactly. <laughs> Apparently, the ship had Mexican. There's a lot of flames coming out of the back. Oh, what? <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. No, it—you know—it—it it makes sense. You're absolutely right. It, 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 what he just hit on and what you just said are one of the things that, beyond that, in addition to that being annoying. The fact that these guys are kind of proud and think it's cute when they don't know something about science. You know what I'm saying? Right,
2: right. Oh, I never did well in science. Ha, 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 ha. The interesting thing is there's a lot of mysteries in science where if you learn a little bit of science, then you could talk about those mysteries, not the mystery of why you don't know the word infrared at all. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And there's not a mystery behind that. It's called public school. (laughs) Public school. (laughs) This is All right, this is Star
2: Talk Radio. We'll be back in a moment.
1: Do you want to set up your child for success? or the personality. There's one site for all the kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can use it at home on the computer or on the go through the app on your phone or your tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything itself and no more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. 1 in 4 students in the US are learning with IXL. I IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at ixl.com/starttalk. Visit ixl.com/starttalk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour.
3: When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over, from book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells amazing airwick vibrant scented oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular airwick scented oils for our most authentic nature-inspired fragrance experience Hmm. transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily now that's a breath of fresh airwick
2: R-Talk Radio, Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist, and I'm in studio with Chuck Nice. Yes. Chuck Nice comic. That's right. At Chuck Nice comic. At, at, is that where you're? No, you're at here right now. I am at here.
1: Oh, my mother would just had a stroke. <laughs> That's where where you be at. Where, where you be at. I'd be at here. <laughs> oh, my oh God. I'd be at. <laughs> <laughs> I could almost feel the lash of a belt across my backside. How Dare you, Chuck? Bringing the ghetto into
2: Startalk Radio. Uh, We've been featuring my interview. This whole show has been on science journalism, and who's the leading science journalist? It's got to be Miles O'Brien. I mean, who else would we be talking about? Uh, Who else? And I caught up with him. I think it was in Washington D.C. I did this interview some time ago, and it was the best I could do. I had pulled out a microphone, and but uh, do you know what? You know what's happened to Miles since then? No, he got into an accident, and he damaged his forearm of his arm, and they had to amputate. He's Ew. like missing half his arm now. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. He, he had really good spirits about it cuz the the option was to not amputate and then die. So if that's your choice, oh, yeah. I think you're you're good with the missing exactly. half an arm.
1: One arm, die.
2: Right. I, yeah, I got you, it. You got that. But he's got he's back in business and he's uh, got an active Twitter feed and he's still doing pieces for the PBS NewsHour, so uh, that he's a real trooper.
1: Oh, good for him. And man.
2: I wonder I asked him in the interview what kind of stories you know I like knowing people's favorites, right? So I asked what is what's the favorite story? stuff he likes to do as a, as a journalist because you know there's going to be some boring stories out there. Uh, yes, this is true. Every, you know, everybody's got to do the boring ones, but I just wanted to find out what makes him tick.
3: What meant the most to me as a journalist covering the loss of Columbia to be on the air mm. for 16 solid hours live, no net, and drawing upon my knowledge and wits. Is the Columbia space shuttle that yeah, broke the up. The loss, on, February 1st, 2003. At that time, I was a couple of weeks away. We had been having private meetings to talk about what NASA had agreed to do, which was to fly me on the shuttle to the station. That was all ready to go once Columbia landed. You were in line to be an astronaut? I was going to do I was going to move to Houston. I had the whole thing lined up. I'd been working on it for years. And that Saturday morning, we lost Columbia Air crew, friends of mine, NASA. Yeah. This is our family, right? And so as a journalist, talk about a mix of emotions to deal with. And I went on the air for 16 hours and frankly helped our nation get through a horrible tragedy. And so I'm extremely proud of being a part of that. But to say that's your favorite story sounds really strange because it's a horrible thing. So the bookend of that is to cover John Glenn's return to flight with Walter Cronkite as my co-anchor. Who else in the world can say Walter Cronkite (laughs) was their co-anchor? And we ended up having a nice relationship that lasted up until his death. That's the way it was. He was a great man, and it was a wonderful experience. So it's hard to beat those two. Uh, Is there some future story that you you want to cover? You know, if I had the opportunity, I would gladly take a one-way trip to Mars and set up a bureau there. (laughs) Gladly. Wouldn't that be awesome? Mars that, yeah, the Mars Bureau. Oh, that Mars Bureau. That sounds great. Doesn't too. that sound good?
2: <laughs> Miles O'Brien. Reporting live from the Valles Marineris. Well,
3: then to see the reporting Mars. live, I thought about this reporting live thing. You think the lag is bad going to Baghdad now? 20 minutes, the punchlines on jokes don't go so Yeah, there's no you know? witty repartee. You know, Miles, how you doing? Right, we get back in
2: 40 minutes. minutes later. <laughs> 20 there and 20 back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't have you know, spontaneous live reporting. Right. Yeah, because Mars, you know, at its sort of average is 20 minutes away, like travel time. Like travel time. Right, so I'm going to say, hey, Miles, how you doing? 20 minutes later, he receives it, and, he's, uh, and he, he can answer instantly, right? Right. I'm fine.
1: 20 minutes later, later back right that's it's- great <laughs> <laughs> okay. and here's the thing that would kill that conversation I'm sorry could you say that again? <laughs> You're done. <laughs> Just wasted an hour. Exactly. <laughs> so there'd be some serious
2: uh, nipping and tucking of those interviews right. to, to put them to put them on air. But uh, it's interesting how tragedy and and consider that CNN its greatest ratings over all the years were during tragedies when during the it's Gulf War, true. you know, when it was major disasters people tune into CNN and right. so uh, there it is. Um, I mean, it's maybe it's, it's something deep within us all. I, I don't know. We, we,
1: we, oh, yeah, we definitely gravitate towards uh, the macabre and, and, and tragedy. Does that work is... in humor too? Don't you? Yes, it does. As a matter of fact, which is odd because people want to laugh, but Ooh. now you're going to make them
2: sad and they laugh about being sad. And
1: what, well, there is a very specific dark humor that many people, uh, you know, uh, uh, subscribe to really that okay. they just love when you, you know, when you have jokes, you like there's, I, okay, I, like dead grandma jokes. Okay, I hate to put it. Dead there, grandma jokes. Okay, there's there's a whole genre of to are just called dead grandma jokes. Just
2: the dead grandma genre. Yes, and you, people. You love guys it. are messed up. We are <laughs> messed up in the head, man. <laughs> you guys are just messed, <laughs> messed up. up. Okay. <laughs> so actually, no. Now that I think about it, when I tell cosmic stories, the ones that op- people eyes open the most are like when the spe- the human species goes extinct from asteroids. Oh God, Or when, yes. if you if you get stretched and spaghettified falling into a black hole. Oh, yeah. people people totally dig that.
1: Well, there's something in our psyche that I mean Okay, it's, so it's not you comedians are messed up, we, we are messed up as humans. Absolutely. I the, mean I have to admit, one of the most fascinating things to me is when you think about two galaxies colliding.
2: The, a train wreck that is the most awesome thing to observe ever. Absolutely. And why would that appeal to me? Okay, so we conclude in this star talk that human beings are just messed up. There you go. In the head. Thanks for tuning in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> have a nice day. <laughs>
2: You've been listening to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. Chuck Nice, thanks as always for being my co host. That was all about journalism. It'll continue. Trying to bring the universe down to earth any way we can. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio. As always, I bid you to keep looking up.